A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this week's show, the ethics of space hacking, miserable Scotsman, and a possible rival to secret cinema. It's September the 12th, 2014. I'm in Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. To borrow a line from probably at least half a dozen bad science fiction films, for you, listener, it's been probably two months, but for us, merely an hour. Uh, (laughs) We're on embankment again. We are next to Jay Bizzle's bust, the Sultan of Sewers, the Prince of Pooh, looks over us. And with me, Dr. Bradley Garrett, he's the author of Explore Everything, Place Hacking, The City which is out in paperback this month, in fact, and Subterranean London, Cracking the Capital, which is out for the first time ever, and it's got pictures in it. Hi, Bradley. Hi. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me back on this endless drift down the embankment. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it in hour-long segments, and uh, by the end of next year, we'll have gotten to freedom. <laughs> We'll make it out of London if we keep going. Now, what we're not going to do is exactly what we did a few weeks back, because we're going to go in the opposite direction. And if you didn't hear the last episode, its signature sound was anarchy, really. Crossing boundaries that other people might not cross and digging into bits of the city that are officially off limits looking underneath the sidewalks and exploring various places that are supposed to be closed to public access so the news that we're heading towards the houses of parliament may ring alarm bells in some listeners but what are we aiming to encounter as we go in this direction bradley well, I think, you know, the, the last time that we spoke, we really just opened out the idea of the hidden city, thinking about sewers, thinking about electricity tunnels, and, of course, thinking about going into these places. Um, I think what would be really good on, in, in this hour is to think more about the politics of going into these places. You know, what does it mean to go into uh, spaces that don't belong to you and take photographs? Um, but once again, we're, we're, we're starting at the bust of Jay Bizzle on the embankment. And this time, you know, in, in the theme of uh, getting increasingly political, yeah, let's move towards Parliament. I want to pounce on the turn of phrase you use there regarding photography. Take photographs. 
something that I've been vaguely aware of as I've been doing this podcast is that some views belong to people and some views are kind of copyrighted and Skyline, I forget which Skylines, whether it's the city, it might even be New York, are the property of uh, organisations and, and so forth. Um, and of course there's that, oh, I don't know if it's true, but there's the uh, native Australian view that if you take a photograph you're stealing the soul of the person. There is something about accessing a place that you're not allowed into and then photographing it and then publishing it, which might get up people's noses on some sort of ownership level, isn't it? Well, you know, a, 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 a photograph is an inscription of light in the same way that, you know, writing is an inscription of typography. So, you know, we're making a record. And making a record is, of course, always political because you are... Um, you're collecting things, you're marking things down. Um, and if you're, if you're somewhere that you're not supposed to be, in the same way that if you were um, in a place you weren't supposed to be and you were writing about it, you know, that, that story might... Um, uh, people might find that irksome or, or, or even threatening, right? And photographs are the same thing. I want to congratulate you. I think that's the debut of the word irksome on this podcast. <laughs> I'll try not to use it again. Well, I'm... <laughs> Once and once and once only. <laughs> yeah. So you enjoy these treats. We've got our irksome fill for the month. Uh, but it's, oh God, I just did it. <laughs> yeah, fail. It strikes me that that's something of an understatement, though. Uh, we mentioned in the last recording the reaction of TFL to your uh, capers. Uh, but what about more generally? Do you have people feeling that somehow what you photographed, if it's off limits? It belongs to them, the image itself? Well, look, any, anyone who has taken photos in the city has encountered this, right? I mean, the, 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 the law of the land is that if you're, on, if you're in public space, so you're standing on a public pavement, you can photograph whatever you want. There's no law against that. But you'll constantly be, if you, if you try and do that at the Gherkin, for instance, and you photograph the building, you know, you will be confronted by an overzealous security guard who's going to tell you that you're doing something illegal. And you're not doing something illegal. But, you know, most people, if you tell them that, they'll stop. And that, that of course, is the point. The thing is, um, we're surrounded by... We're surrounded by uh, rules, and we're surrounded by barriers. And a lot of these barriers are invisible. What sort of thing have you got in mind? Well, I mean, you can think of lit literal barriers, right? So you look at when, when there's a construction site and they put hoarding around the construction site and, it, you know, it very clearly indicates, you know, do not cross this, right? Or you can think about the, the classic no trespassing sign, right? I mean, it's a, clear, it's a clear indication you're not supposed to cross this. But invisible barriers are much more nefarious because we don't necessarily see them or know that they're there. Like, if you're on the South Bank, you may not realize that, that even though this looks like public space on the other side of the river there it's actually privately owned so what we're doing now would be a problem you you can't make recordings because those recordings are made on their property and they feel that they have you know they should own those yes i must say i mean i've never quite understood the rationale behind their belief in ownership of that particularly if it's a sound record for example if you've got a mobile phone as every single human being alive now does uh, you've got a recording device on that phone and you could uh, record the call, you could record a memo to yourself or whatever. But as soon as you put the fluffy microphone hello. baffle on that we're using here, hello, <laughs> then suddenly it becomes a big problem and they have to tell you to stop. So part of it is really about how conspicuous you are and whether they can catch you, which seems like a, a rather flimsy reason for stopping someone no, it doing is, something. I mean, it's also about how, kind of how um, quote-unquote professional your equipment looks. So there's this... Very few people know this, but it is 
totally legal to take photographs in the tube. Everyone thinks that you can't take photos. You actually can. What you can't do is you can't use flash because it could distract a driver. That makes sense because that's a safety issue, right? But you also can't use a tripod because there's some sort of indication that if uh, there's there's some sort of um, uh, you know consensus amongst the people who made this law that if you're using a tripod, you're a professional and you therefore should have a permit and be paying them to take the photos. I mean, what a weird mentality. Like, it's what a, what a, what a deep misunderstanding of the technology, right? That just because the thing is on legs, you suddenly are, are a professional. And you can take photographs, but you mustn't do it well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the thing... So this is what I'm talking about with invisible boundaries, right? How would you ever know... Like, that, that law is not obvious or explicit, right? But as soon as you deploy your tripod on a tube platform, you watch how quickly someone will descend and tell you that you can't do that so often the boundaries that regulate our behavior are invisible right and there are certain ways that we can kind of probe those boundaries and then they suddenly become visible what we're doing when we take photographs of the hidden city is we call up those boundaries all over the place we figure out what we can get away with and what we can't and of course in doing so we sometimes move the bar a little bit but um I feel that the politics behind the photographs that we're taking is a politics of making space more democratic because what because we're we're sharing information with the public and we're also making the the, the boundaries of what we can and can't experience and what we can and can't share we're making that visible. I know we were talking last time about the encounters that you've had on occasion with people who are living in some of the places that you have, I'm going to say invaded, I'm going to say you committed a home invasion, (laughs) Uh, but really what we're talking about is people in sewer systems and the like. Um, And it was quite clear that you believed in a sort of a tread lightly approach to to that and uh, a very pragmatic approach. I want to level something at you that, just to see what you do with it. I want to level something at you, which is that you are, um, in some respects, a moral-free operator. A moral-free operator? Well, I, you know, morals should never be defined by law. You know, morals are something that, that, that are internal. And I think it's some, that morals are something that are built from experience. You know, you, Isn't there something terribly egotistical about that approach? There is, but of course we can come to a common consensus about what we think is right. We've all experienced a situation where we come up against the law and we think, oh, this is illogical, this doesn't make any sense, there's no reason why this law should exist. And very often we might ask you know, someone we're with at the moment, what do you think of this? And they totally agree, this is, this is, this is insane, this is absurd, there's no reason we should follow this law. So, I mean, you know, this is... I think that if, if we're going to live in a society where there is a sense of community, um, you know, we should all be working towards um, building a legal and a social and cultural structure that makes sense, that, that we agree with. And, you know, that, that requires, you know, going out into the world and, and trying things out. It's a process of experimentation, really. And I get the sense that you feel you're rubbing up against some fairly old-fashioned thinking in places that probably is due for review. Yeah, certainly. And but that's that's never that's always been the case. If you know, if you were to go back two thousand years, you would you would find people you know probably doing the same thing in the Roman Empire, saying, "Well, they, you know, this law doesn't make any sense. We must protest." But the th- the thing that is different about this age is that you know protest is becoming criminalized, and. Our behaviors are becoming um, 
so regulated and controlled and surveilled that I'm beginning to feel like this is not a democracy anymore, right? And so the only way that we can stake a claim to the city anymore is just to stop asking for permission. I mean, this whole notion that you have to apply for a permit to protest in London, what insanity. The whole point of the protest is that it, you know, it's a spontaneous eruption of dissent. You cannot permit this. That is the point, you know? It's completely contradictory. So, um, you know, what, what we're doing when we go out and we photograph the hidden city is, you know, we're undertaking a temporary occupation of a space and we're taking a photograph, which is very much a protest that says, you know, um, we, we don't necessarily agree with this space being hidden from view and, and we're going to share it with people. And as long as there aren't, you know, any hugely negative impacts, or I guess I should say as long as the positive impacts outweigh the negative impacts, then I don't see a problem with crossing those boundaries. We're about to talk, I suspect, about some of the underground stuff that the government would rather we didn't know existed and certainly didn't know the size and shape of. I wonder whether there isn't a situation where your crafting of your own code for what you're doing might not run up against uh, things that you couldn't possibly foresee, things that are hidden away, and really, you know, might cause a national security threat if it were to be publicised maybe you run the risk of not knowing what it is you're photographing uh, how do you deal with those kind of issues in what you do <laughs> the, all of that language that you just used will be very familiar to people thinking about Snowden or Assange right we, we, we're now in an age where we understand politically what it means to release information um, information that is intended to be secret and very often, releasing that information can be detrimental to authority. Very often, it can be beneficial to the public. But you can't predict what's going to happen when you release information. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, there are potentially people that have been targeted from the release of that information. So there, there's, a, there's a reason why I call what we do place hacking. Because in the same way that we all now recognize that information is being controlled and that our movements and our activities online are being surveilled, the same thing is happening in physical space. And for some reason, we, we overlook it, right? Spaces are being built that we are not invited to participate in. Spaces are being built that we're not even invited to know are being built, and they're being built with our tax money. If we start revealing information about these spaces, we could nullify their purpose like for instance if, if if there was a if there was a secret bunker that was being built that was to house the government in the event of a catastrophic attack or natural disaster and that information was was put out into the world and made public um, potentially that bunker isn't useful anymore and you know those those are consequences that we need to be aware of but well, so what's your, how would you proceed then with that in mind? We've, we've run into spaces in the past that we've chosen not to share. And um, again, you know, being a moral person and doing ethical work isn't, isn't about um, tying your ethos to a, a larger superstructure. It's about making decisions on a case-by-case -case basis about whether or not what you're doing is, is ethical. 
or moral. And, um, you know, we make those decisions on a case-by-case basis. That's just how you deal with it. The listener is going to be crying out to know something about these sacred cows. <laughs> I don't, I, obviously, we can't be too specific, but could you give a flavor of what sort of thing you've run into? So right now we're, we're on the embankment and we're walking toward Parliament and very soon we're going to be uh, to Westminster Bridge. Underneath us are cable tunnels and interceptor sewers, as we discussed in the last episode. On the other side of us, across the road, is the Jubilee Line. Now, the Jubilee Line is, is, is... The lines are stacked on top of each other, right? They're not run side by side like many of the other lines. The reason for that is because there was another tunnel in the way. And when they were constructing the Jubilee Line, the government kept sending back plans and telling them to move their tunnel, but they wouldn't tell them why. They would just say, look, it's, it's got to go 30 meters that way. And why is none of your business? We can pretty reasonably assume that the um, electricity tunnels that we've been inside here abut uh, some secret government tunnels. I mean, I don't know if you ever noticed, but the, the you know government officials aren't really walking around on the street moving from building to building in this area. And the reason is because they're taking tunnels underneath the city. We think that we've been up against those tunnels. We, we've, been, there's, we've essentially reached a breeze block wall and behind that are the government tunnels. And, um, you know, that's a point where we chose to walk away uh, as, as much as our curiosity was driving us mad. Because, the, because um, not because the consequences for us. Really were, not even personal safety? No, no. It's, it has nothing to do with the consequences for us. I mean, I, I, I would love to see those tunnels and see what they look like. But the consequences, you know, to the government could have been severe. So, you know, that's not, that's not information we would want to be released. <laughs> Equally, I'm sure Snowden and Assange, you know, there's plenty of information they've received that they've decided not to distribute. And, you know, it's just be, just because you're crossing these boundaries doesn't mean that that that, um, uh, that you cross them recklessly. We are approaching a lot of police vehicles which are pulled up at the side of the street. And I'm not sure what they might be here to to look at. Let's see if we can get a glimpse. <laughs> you will remember that our last uh, encounter with the police around uh, security and invisible barriers and so forth uh, didn't end as well as it could have done. Ah, yeah, we've, we've had a number of encounters at the Olympic site. Did I strike you as a little overzealous there? Very overzealous. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something interesting about the Olympic site. I was making a film as part of my PhD... Um, and we were filming around the perimeter of the Olympic site. <clears throat> and we were accosted constantly by security, asking for identification, telling us that it was illegal to be filming, etc., etc. <laughs> some urban explorers then went back in the middle of the night and figured out that the, <laughs> the electric fences that were, were draped up around the Olympic site actually didn't function. So, well, they drew straws, and basically our, our, friend, <laughs> our friend got the short straw and had to try the electric fence. It didn't even work. They climbed straight over the electric fence, right in front of all the cameras, went into the Olympic site before the Olympics were open, and wandered around, um, went into the stadium while it was still under construction. No one saw them or knew they were there. And it's just another indication that, you know, that a lot of these these boundaries and barriers that are very visible um, 
It's 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 there for show, right? A bit of bluster. Yeah, it's a bluff. And when you call the bluff, very often you can get away with a lot more than you thought you could. We had a disclaimer on the last show of this sort. We must repeat that and say that, of course, we're not endorsing or advocating any of this kind of activity at all. <laughs> Keeping in mind that trespass is not a criminal offence in England. We, we can't endorse or condone anything that I've done over the past five years. We should say, and we've been treated to a lovely day to record here on the embankment as we get the uh, houses of Westminster in our sights. On the opposite side of the river directly is the London Eye. I think that, that white structure is really uh, suits a blue sky behind it. In fact, there's something very clever about the structures along here. The footbridge that we can see with the... Oh, I need a technical term here. Those long bits of white wire. They look like oh, bicycle the, the, spokes. The, the, the suspension cables. Suspension cables. That'll do the job. And the spokes of the eye and further upriver the structure of the Millennium Bridge it all sort of corresponds in a very pleasing way Yeah, one of the things that I really love about London is that is that even though we're all incredibly nostalgic here and love to romanticise the Victorians and everything there's also no qualms about putting you know, a, a, a very contemporary structure and you know anywhere you go in London you'll see this you'll, you'll see, you know, Victorian buildings next to Georgian buildings next to, you know, brutalist buildings next to, you know, some modern glass and skyscraper and I, I just love that juxtaposition that you never really know what you're going to get here a few personal questions if I may yeah we've talked about what you do I'd like to focus on you for a second mm. what did your missus think of what you get up to <laughs> I met her exploring <laughs> <laughs> she, she's worse than me <laughs> no she's my my um my girlfriend she's a she's an artist and she spent about 10 years as a really dedicated urban explorer. And she's been to, you know, 10 times the locations I have. Um, but she, uh, she her, her art career took off a couple of years ago. And she's been doing so well. She's just dumped all of her energy into that. And she's left the exploring to me. So she does. I wondered whether there might be that anxiety. Now, I guess it kind of makes sense if it was something she was doing with you. But uh, we were talking off mic, for example, about a track around a, an outcrop of land and the, the sea goes out and then it rushes back up and you could get marooned or worse. That's fine if you're doing it with somebody else and you can share the adventure, but do you ever have conversations along the lines of, well, no, please don't do that one, it's a bit dangerous? We've never had that conversation. It's probably why our relationship is so strong. You know? That would be the terminal We've, conversation, presumably. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess, you know, I've had relationships in the past where, where um, my partners have been really frustrated with what I do. Um, well, they've been frustrated with who, who I am, that I sort of seek these things out. And I tend to put myself in situations that could end badly. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like um, our time here is so short. And there's so, there's so many amazing things to get involved with in the world. I just can't imagine circumscribing my experiences in that way because I'm concerned about my safety or whatever. And the other thing, there's, there's something... There is something particular about this country, and especially this city, that people are like, really um, overly concerned with health and safety and, and other people's welfare. And very often what you find is when someone tells you that something is really unsafe and then you go and do it, you find it's, it's not at all. It's perfectly safe and actually totally reasonable. And, you know, as much as I wouldn't encourage other people to walk in the sewers for instance walking in the sewers is perfectly safe and perfectly reasonable as long as you know what you're doing um, I often ascribe that risk aversion to an increasing litigiousness 
and a fear, particularly among corporate bodies, of being sued by somebody who's got injured. But the thing is, there's no there's no legal precedent that, that bears that out. There is in the United States. You know, there's a reason why um, there's that, 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 that kind of culture of fear around litigation in the United States. But the th- those things don't fly in courts here. You know, people don't get sued for spilling hot coffee on themselves in the UK. And I just, I think what I think what's happened is that the the um, uh, the fear of litigiousness has been imported from the United States without the legal basis that actually makes it real. Um, and that's kind of bizarre. You were talking in the last episode about your experiences being taken to court and. Uh, it'd be interesting just to touch on the support that you didn't receive against the support you did receive and how that played out from uh, media outlets who I gather after the trial were very keen to speak to you yeah there was a lot of media interest in my PhD research um, up until the point when I was charged and everyone knew that I was going to court and of course um, you know, organisations like the BBC were really afraid to, to then speak to me because uh, they didn't want to be held in contempt of court. I also had, um, you know, a lot of academic colleagues, and in fact, the institution where I did my PhD completely abandoned me and, and offered me no support whatsoever through the trial, which was um, a very difficult experience. And then, of course, when, when, uh, when the trial was resolved and my name was cleared and everything was okay again all of the calls started flooding in and everyone wanted me to talk about the court case and, and a lot of those interviews I turned down because um, I just, you know, I, I didn't feel it was ethical to actually, you know, give give people the time and give people the story when they didn't offer me the support when I needed it most. With that said, um, th- there were also people who rallied to my to my cause and, and who supported me, people that I really didn't expect. I mean, uh, Will Self, in particular, was an incredible ally, and he was the one that got in contact with me, and he said, I am frustrated with your situation, you know, this is an absurdity that you're being tried for exploring the city, what can I do for you? And I'll I'll, I'll be forever grateful to Will Self for for doing that for me. We're nearly at the Houses of Westminster. (laughs) You can see them just beyond the Westminster Bridge there. And I must say, this is a journey I take not often enough it's a really pleasant walk and uh, currently being experienced potentially by lots of government types under our feet yeah and what sort of stuff we we know because we're still on the embankment presumably that the interceptor sewer is still just underneath us the electrical cables uh, potentially uh, government transport stuff we don't know and what other subterranean could we interest ourselves with around here well the the jubilee line is obviously running not far from us and um that's that's one of the deepest am I right that's one of the deepest stations deepest station platforms we've got I think it is yeah Um, and what few people know about the Jubilee line is uh, Parliament Square you know the grass in the middle of Parliament Square what is separating that grass from the Jubilee line is very little Uh, there's essentially a metal plate that's that's holding up all of that grass which is why um, they really they panicked when people started setting up tents in that square. That's why they don't want protesters congregating in the square. It's not actually about stopping people from being on the, being in Parliament Square. It's about stopping people from being on the grass because they're afraid that the thing is actually going to collapse. They don't know how much weight it can hold. But if you stand in that grass, 
when a Jubilee Line train is going under, you can feel it rumbling under your feet. It's a great feeling. Not quite as good as, as the feeling of running through the tunnels, but, you know. Do you suppose that's intentional? Is that a, a get-out-of-Westminster-quick plan? <laughs> Maybe it is, yeah. The, the thing is, we, 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 um, I've actually brought you on a relatively shallow walk in terms of subterranean London. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got kind of three of the layers here. We've got, um, we've got sewers, we've got utility tunnels, which house all of the fiber optics and telecommunications and electricity and, and gas at times. Uh, and we've got the tube, so we've got three layers. But in other parts of the city, uh, we also have deep-level shelters, which are, which are deeper than the tube. Many of those were, were dug out during World War II um, and then retrofitted during the Cold War. Into- oh, because we all know about people hiding in the tube in the Second World War. And I, I want to say in the First World War as well, by the way. Um, but the, uh, they were actually digging shelters as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were digging shelters, like the, the, on the Northern Line, for instance. You've got shelters at Clapham South, Clapham Common, Clapham North, um, Stockwell, Gooch Street, Belsize Park. I can't remember. There's, a, there's um, a number of shelters. And each one of those shelters would house 2,000 people. Now, check this out. Here's a, here's a really interesting story. If one of, the, one of the, 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 the most dense areas in terms of subterranean layers is around Chancery Lane. And you've got another... Uh, World War II bunker that was dug out at Chancery Lane but this bunker disappears from the list of bunkers because what happens is during the Cold War they turned it into a a secret telephone exchange called Kingsway Telephone Exchange and um, there were there was a there was a very small door on Furnival Street where the workers would quietly enter and exit, looking as if they were going into a building on Furnival Street. What they were actually doing was going 30 meters down a spiral staircase into the Kingsway Telephone Exchange, which was kind of the, the, the main artery of, of you know, what is now British telecommunications. And why did they need that secret facility? Well, it was... Well, they, they, they were terrified of a nuclear attack. And so, the, at 30 meters, the thought was, this telephone exchange would... Um, would survive if there was a nuclear attack on London. And that's why they kept it secret. There was actually a journalist in, um, uh, I think it was 1978, called Duncan Campbell. He's, he's, he's one of our great allies, one of, the ur- one of the early urban explorers in London. He found his way into the Kingsway Telephone Exchange in the late 70s, and he went down there with a camera and a bicycle and he rode his bicycle through the telephone exchange, taking photos. And when he published the photos, the, um, the, the, the general post office who owned the telephone exchange at the time, they said that the photos were fakes and he had mocked them up in a studio. So this is an early example of an urban explorer revealing secret information about government spaces and the government being terrified of, of what, what it meant to relay that, that information. And of course, he was posting photos as well as text. Now, one of the, one of the um, journalists that did the work with him was an American, and he was actually deported for uh, violating uh, state secrecy laws. For knowing stuff. For knowing stuff, yeah. So nothing's changed. <laughs> well, we're going to take a break and a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with Dr. Bradley Garrett and further subversion in just a moment. London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf with me, Dr. Bradley Garrett and his baseball cap. <laughs> I feel it's, it's played such a prominent role in things. I just, with the, the baseball cap. Yes, it's, it's yeah, been there the whole time. Hide, hiding behind my cap and glasses. <laughs> it is very hot out here. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. It might, <laughs> it's not hot anymore, is it? That's a, uh, we're at Westminster Pier, but my, I was about to introduce that, and I was distracted by the sight of a chap of uh, some years in traditional Scottish attire with Tam walking past us looking miserable as sin. <laughs> Poor street performers. you really got a feel for them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you've brought us to this particular spot where we've been looking down a drain cover that's been chained to the drain itself to stop scrap metal people coming and scrapping it. Uh, it's quite a beautiful object, really. But we're by this sort of wall, and it's got big... Uh, it's about a 10-foot, 12-foot wall, and it's got several arches in here with grills against them. What, what is this? Well, everyone that has, has sort of walked down the embankment towards Westminster will have experienced this, this kind of rise where the embankment lifts up towards the station, and then there's this lower bit, um, which is kind of next to, the, next to the pier. What's inside there is the cable tunnels that we've been walking down. So as the street raises up, the cable tunnels run underneath this, and if we are to carry on walking, so we're walking toward Parliament and toward this, uh, this plinth that has the Boudicca statue on it, you can see a door in that plinth. That door is actually the entrance to these cable tunnels. And how do you come by this information? Well, we can actually go look. We can just stick our heads through this door, and you can actually see the tunnels back there. And it's amazing to me that people don't do this. It's, you know, there, there, are, there are open holes in the door, and you can just look inside. That's true. There are people milling around. I mean, you couldn't want for more people to be milling around. Do you know what? I was just about to complain about a strange electrical noise. Listen, I have to bring you into the secret here. Every now and again, you'll hear a high-pitched whine when you're listening to this show. And I don't mean the guest having enough. A bit like a mosquito, something like that. And it's caused by the proximity of electrical cables. We've, we've worked this out. Uh, it's happened once or twice. And here we are standing next to these electrical conduits. And here's the noise. Let's see if we can get it to... That's not going to do it on demand, though, is it? No, you, could, you couldn't be near more cables, though. Th- these are the main arteries of, of uh, you know, telecommunications and fiber optics running through the city. So, yeah, you've got, you're going to get a hell of a lot of interference, despite the uh, insulation on the cables. You know, the cables, so this is quite interesting. You, you noted that the, um, that the manhole cover was really ornate. And the Victorians, when they built stuff, you know, they, they had this incredible attention to detail in everything they built, as many people know. But it even extended to the stuff we don't see. You know, the sewers are really beautiful, and, and they clearly um, laid every one of those 318 million bricks with great care. You know, people really, people really thought about these things. All of the junctions in the sewers, the way that the tunnels come together, really gorgeous. And also, with these electricity tunnels, or these, these cable tunnels that we're about to peek into, um, there's, just a, there's, a, there's a great attention to detail with the way that they're laid out, and even the signage that points you to different parts in the system uh, that no one ever gets to see. Well, I like how that meshes together with your idea that the same equipment now would be designed to be invisible, essentially, that we're not supposed to notice that it's there. Well, yeah, the, these, so these electricity cables that are causing the interference in your microphone um, are covered with this kind of um, uh, this plastic sheathing, you know, insulation. And the sheathing is all, like, fluorescent colors, and so you get these crazy kind of rainbows of cables going through, these, you know, these beautiful brick uh, 
arches underground and then these really gaudy sort of fluorescent cables like because no one cares they're thinking when they're laying these cables in in you know the 1990s or the 2000s or whenever they're thinking well no one's ever going to see them so it doesn't really matter what they look like and also but this this also extends not just to the the kind of you know the actual physicality of the cables but the way that they're laid they're like crazy tangles and rat's nests of cables down there because the people who are laying them think, well, no, no one's ever going to see them, so who cares? As long as they function, that's all that matters, right? Well, we're heading up to the statue of Boudicca there. Boudicca, uh, famous for her contribution to the city. <laughs> her contribution to the city? I mean, she murdered she, loads of people. She set fire to the thing. <laughs> she set fire to the city. Well done, Boudicca. Great contribution. So we're just coming up to this wooden door. In the, so look at, I mean, look at the, you know, there, there is, a, there is a, a, a plinth with a statue on top of it, and there's a door in it, and no one looks in the door. Is that your ringtone? No, it's not. I don't, I don't think it's another busker, another sad busker. I've been keeping an eye on this door as we've progressed, and despite a multitude of international folk milling around here not one person has gone up to this door to have a shifty yeah so we're gonna we're gonna walk up the stairs here and anyone can do this anyone who's walking by can do this Come, walk up here step up on this little platform look inside and what you see are uh, the GLC pipe subways see that ladder going down I do how far down does that shaft go um, it's not very far at all. The ladder, the ladder is about a meter, and then you are into the cable tunnels. And get this, you can from there you can walk all the way to Blackfriars and pop out of a lid right in front of the Fleet River. Then you can open up another lid and go into the Fleet River, and you can walk that up to King's Cross. <laughs> Again, we are not recommending that anybody tries that. <laughs> How amazing! You smell it—the the smell of subterranean. So every layer of London underground has a different smell. And I'll, I know when I get a whiff of something, we're, we're near a, a grating or a manhole or something, I'll always know whether it's, um, whether it's a cable tunnel, whether it's tube, or whether it's sewer. Um, the bunkers are a bit more difficult because they, the, the bunkers smell like the cable tunnels, but they're a bit more musty and a bit more wet. You can, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a really discerning nose, I think you could identify a World War II bunker by the smell. And it's, of course, you know, the final layer, what we haven't talked about yet, is everything that's being built now. Uh, Crossrail and the super sewer, which I think has begun at this point. But, you know, Crossrail has got um, an incredible smell. This is a sort of combination of all of this pulverized earth from the tunnel boring machines with all of the kind of, you know, fresh cement and, and the, the kind of patina of cement dust that's all over everything. We, uh, <laughs> we should explain. There was a moment's hesitation there. <laughs> I nearly switched guests. Uh, somebody has taken a position beside Dr. Bradley Garrett and appeared about to start a lecture on uh, some other subject. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that, would, maybe that would be advisable at this point. <laughs> let's, let's maybe, they're, maybe they're waiting to go through the door. Yes, it doesn't look much like an engineering team, I must say. There was an interesting idea that you touched on earlier, which was the idea of what one is supposed to look at and not supposed to look at. And in a situation like the one we've just experienced there, where you can clearly see through a window, 
that has been designed for the purpose of seeing through, one would presume, if not ventilation. It's kind of okay if you look through, but if you were to take a photograph, does that become a different category of experience? Is somebody going to take greater offence because you're doing that? How do those different categories of experience tend to be enforced by the people who feel they've got authority over them? You know, they're... (laughs) They're not actually enforced by authorities, they're enforced by each other. And that's the thing that's so terrifying. I mean, in, in the last episode, I pulled out a sewer key and I was about to open a lid. You got a bit nervous, didn't you? Cause, and, but why? We were just going to look. We are just going to open it up and have a look. What's, what's the problem with that, <laughs> you know? I guess we all regulate each other's behavior. Um, you can think about that in an, in an everyday way on the tube how you know we, we we don't talk on the tube and there's this kind of you know, there's a social stigma against having a loud conversation or you know eating hot food or you know there are all these sort of there are all these sort of norms and rules that are oh, now those those are very much enforced on the tube aren't they we have cartoon poster campaigns advising us to be tetchy with each other that's true but those those campaigns didn't used to be there i think that i think we created the codes first and then they were and then they were codified by the authorities um, and you know my concern with with the rest of the city is that if we all start regulating each other in the same way on the streets and we all start, you know, deciding not only that you can't photograph the gherkin but you can't even look at it because it's a security threat or something, you know, then that will become codified and then we and then we start living in a, in a, a, a you know, honestly kind of terrifying place to live where we're all regulating each other's behaviors all the time. So I feel like when people um when people see us looking at things, opening a sewer lid and having having a whiff, having a look, you know, going up to a door in a plinth and sticking our head through, or indeed sticking our camera inside and taking a photo, or, you know, just walking in, in a direction where we're not supposed to be, or sitting down somewhere where we're not supposed to stop. I feel like the more people see that, the more it helps us to understand that those boundaries are, are fictitious and we're creating them for each other. And that actually they may not be beneficial to us socially. You know, there's some, there is something valuable about being a little bit disruptive. <laughs> we've got about 20 minutes or so left on today's episode. And whilst we've adhered to the area in which we find ourselves, we could go further afield in this last little section. Sure. And think about some of the places around London that uh, either you've been to or know that people have been to and are worthy of mention and perhaps one or two that perhaps you're aware of and have yet to visit. Oh, where to begin? <laughs> in uh, the early 1900s, the post office built this, um, essentially a mini tube called the Mail Rail, um, which runs from Paddington to Whitechapel. It's a six-and-a-half-mile system. And we knew that the, um, that the Mail Rail was there and that it still existed and we knew that in 2001 the post office decided that it was it was not um, you know economically it didn't make sense to keep it open so they had they had mothballed it so the thing wasn't necessarily derelict but it was in the state of kind of benign neglect you know they just it was just sitting there with the electricity on so we spent two years trying to figure out how to get into the mail rail um, so that we could photograph it and, and we did, eventually, in 2011. And um, uh, the mail rail is a really exceptional place in London. Um, you know, the, the, the trains in there are tiny. They're called Mini Yorks. Um, they used to just carry postal bags. But you can kind of scrunch yourself up into a train, and you can actually ride them through the tunnel. And I think the, the um, post office is now talking about turning it into a ride of some sort, so you could actually ride the train. 
Um, I do wonder if we had some sort of influence on that by releasing the photos of the thing. No, look at you. You, ju- you laugh about this, but uh, so we went into um, all of the bunkers in Clapham, right? The World War II bunkers that we've discussed at, at Clapham South, Clapham Common, and Clapham North, right? These bunkers have essentially been abandoned since World War II. As soon as we got into them and we took photographs of them and we released the photos online, uh, Clapham South was purchased by a secure file storage company and Clapham North was turned into an underground farm. An underground farm? An underground farm, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently they're growing hydroponics or something in inside the, the World War II bunker. That might be a great episode, actually. You should that's, go. That's on my list of things to be. Yeah, well, it's on my list, too, so I'll be happy to go with you if you get access. Um... But, you know, we snuck into the, the mail rail. We took photos of that. We got millions of hits on our, on our blogs from the photos of the mail rail. And then, sure enough, after, you know, a decade of the thing being derelict, they decide that they're going to turn into a heritage attraction with a ride. We sneak into the abandoned tube stations, including uh, Brompton Road and Down Street. And very soon after we released the photos of those... Um, an entrepreneur bought one of the tube stations, I think at Brompton Road, and intends to turn it into a, an underground restaurant or something. It, these can't be coincidences, right? I mean, there, there are too many coincidences to think that, that, that we're not affecting the way people think about these spaces. And so when people tell me that, you know, what we're doing is, is nefarious in revealing these secret spaces in London, that, that we have, you know, essentially no right to reveal... Um, I can't help but think that there could be a lot of positive consequences to our actions. Um, in my opinion, these are not positive. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's got to be but, counterproductive. You're bringing these things into private ownership. Yeah, but for those people who, who really believe in, in capitalism and the way the city is structured and that spaces should be used and people should be making money and all of that, you know, I mean, these are the same people that get frustrated with what we do because it's not productive in an economic sense. Like, people don't understand what we're doing because we're not selling these photos or we're not, um, we're not making money off of it. You know, it's not a business. But those same people have to recognize that the consequences of what we do may be that other people capitalize on these spaces. So, um, you know, I guess it comes back to a conversation that, that we were having at one point about the fact that we, we can't know what is going to happen to this stuff when we put it out in the world, right? This is the case for, for, for text, it's the case for photos, it's the case for audio, right? You put these things out there and you, and you, and you give it to an audience and the audience will always bring something to what you produce, right? And they may remix it or change it or contest it or whatever, but that's like that's part of the beauty of, of doing work for the public, um, is that people can do whatever they want with it. And it might be positive, it might be negative, we can't control that. It doesn't mean we should stop, because we're, we're afraid of what someone might do with it. Are there any boundaries, and I sort of want to reach beyond the merely physical... Uh, I'm not sure where that might lead us. Maybe uh, interpersonal or spiritual or something. I don't know. Uh, are there any boundaries that you would regard as sacred on on a principle that you had not yourself constructed? No. No. Um, obviously, if if there's a sense that that what I'm doing is 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 potentially wrong, um, I'm going to question that. 
I think, you know, that we, we, we all have an ethical obligation to question everything. We should be doing that constantly. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to disregard whatever it is that's telling me that I shouldn't be doing that, but I, but I, I am going to take it into consideration. I am going to think about it. I am going to process that. And guess what? We might come to different conclusions. That's okay, you know? I mean, that you know, that's what happens when you live in a city of this size with such a diverse population everyone's going to have different ideas on you know what's right and what's wrong and how things should work and of course you know certain things will become codified and certain things um uh will will become sanctioned and other things will be condemned but you know that's always going to change over time and if we don't keep thinking about it and if we don't keep the tension between what we're told and what we think is right then we get into a dangerous place. So you need to set up your own personal embankment, otherwise the waters of authority will lap up against... I can't keep this metaphor <laughs> aloft for long enough. <laughs> Where else in London would you like to poke your lens? Oh, man. We've climbed um, most of the under-construction skyscrapers in the city over the past five years. So we, we've climbed, uh, we climbed Strata... Heron Tower, Temple Court, New Court, the Walkie Talkie, the Cheese Grater, the Shard. Um, How do you do? That seems like a much more challenging proposition because you'd assume that there are fewer points of access, much more guarded, much more active. I, d- I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but they're a lot easier because because the thing about a subterranean location is there's there can only be a few points of access, right? And usually, usually there's a, there's only two in a single system, right? There would be. Um, a manhole at either end that you can imagine in an underground space, like a reservoir or something. Um, the sewers are much easier, obviously. There's, there's you know, thousands of sewer lids all over the city. Um, but a, a, a skyscraper, a construction site, or a ruin, they're open. So essentially, anywhere around the fence is an access point. Um, and, uh, you know, you find pretty advanced camera systems on these sites today, but very often there's no one watching the cameras you know they're 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 there to deter people so i guess you know i I would look forward to future construction in london um you know they're constructing the pinnacle now i'm interested to see that view i i just can't you know i can't get enough of views from rooftops in london even if it even if the building is just you know 500 meters in one direction it's i you know i want to see it i want to see that view too I mean, I think that there's a really underplayed potential in this city for more rooftop venues. And I, I really don't understand why people don't, people don't do something with their roofs. I mean, it doesn't have to be sort of, you know, a bar or something. People could put gardens up there. Um, but very often we get up and it's just sort of, you know, it's just antennas and hot tar. It sounds as though your shopping this might be all bought. <laughs> yeah, well... We're not going to be constructing our own skyscraper anytime. Well, no, you've done, so you've done all the big ones, and we're all waiting on the Helter Skelter to proceed a, a metre further. You've been underground to a great extent. Where is there left for you? There's always more to discover. I'll tell you something else about the embankment, right? It, when, when they constructed this embankment, some of the bridges were already here, right? So the bridges ended up going... Um, creating a sort of empty cavity underneath the embankment, and you've got these sort of hollow points. So underneath London Bridge, for instance, um, you know, London Bridge is hollow. You can get inside it, and then there's there's a big sort of empty cavity that abuts a, a, a staircase. And 
we found our way into the bridge last year, and then we realized when we were exploring down there that that staircase looked like stadium seating. So we decided to have a film screening inside London Bridge, and we, we hung sheets from the wall, and we took a projector down there and a little speaker system, and we, we got 80 people inside London Bridge, and we had this, um, this film screening. And it occurred to me that I, we had actually experienced that place twice. Once as urban explorers, just walking through and poking around, and then as, you know, the real secret cinema. <laughs> there was purely invitation only. And, I, and, and, and it was at that point I realized, you know, all of these spaces that we've been to, you know, we've, we've got hundreds. We've got a massive database of secret spaces in London. They can all be used for other kinds of stuff. And every time you do that, it recreates the space anew. So I, I don't think... Even if, even if we were to physically find all of the spaces in London, we would never run out of things to explore because we can always do something new with them. And, of course, the city is always changing. How do you stay alive in terms of uh, day-to-day putting food on your... I haven't heard anything here at all that seems to be you capitalising on what you're doing. Uh, well, I'm, I'm very lucky to, um, to be a researcher uh, I've got I've got a research position at the University of Oxford, and will uh, very soon be taking up a permanent position at the University of Southampton. So, um, yeah, they they keep me going. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, the thing the thing is, um, I'm a geographer by training, and so you know, thinking about space is what I do. Thinking about place, thinking about how people define themselves in relation to places, and so being an urban explorer makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's, this, is the, this is the dream job for a geographer. And there is one other product that translates into bread and butter, and that is your book, your two books. And we should almost certainly say something about those. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the first book uh, that I published, my first book that, I, that I've ever written, was Explore Everything, Place Hack in the City, which is, is my story of exploring London over five years with some incredible explorers. Uh, explorers from around the world who have come to this city specifically to explore it. And then the uh, what happened, actually, in the course of that is I met about a dozen urban explorers who were absolutely incredible photographers, and we realized that we had this vast archive of photographs that... Um, uh, some of which had only been published online, but most of which had never been published at all. A lot of them were shot on film, and they were just sitting in people's attics. So we, we collected all of the photographs, and we put them together. And the, the second book that we've published, um, Subterranean London, Cracking the Capital, is actually a, vis- a visual dissection of London. We move layer by layer through the city, getting deeper into the city, um, Will Self was kind enough to write a foreword for the for the book, and Stephen Walter did an illustration, uh, which is totally incredible. It's it's a, it's an illustration of all five layers, and it reappears at the beginning of each chapter. So each chapter is a layer that goes deeper, right? And then and then the drawing is highlighted um, as you move through each layer. So it's. Um, yeah, I, the, the, both books together, I think, they work quite well as a pair because you've got the kind of written story along with all the photographs that depict these spaces. But, um, you know, if you're interested in any of the spaces that, that, that we've been talking about here, you know, the mail rail, abandoned tube stations, sewers, utility networks, government bunkers, they're all in there. Well, there's also photos of Crossrail in there and um, a few other things that may uh, stir the pot a bit more. But... <laughs> We'll see what happens. 
Well, it's, it's been a pleasure in both senses, meeting you and on such a fine day. Those books are, of course, both out the paperback version of your first book and the new hardback version of your new book, both out this month and available for, for people to find in the usual places online and bookshops and all that jazz. Dr. Bradley Garrett, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr. Bradley Garrett. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. flexibility take yoga want flexibility with your health insurance check out united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly medical dental and vision coverage that may be right for you more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.